0: morning, community. Man, I have been longing to gather with you this week as we begin a brand new sermon series entitled Shadows, Christ in the Old Testament, where we will look at the reality that Jesus Christ is not just a figure for the New Testament. Jesus Christ has uh, existed uh, always. There's never been a time that Jesus hasn't existed. Uh, he's a part of creation, that He is God Himself Uh, There's never been a time he hasn't existed, there'll never be a time that he doesn't exist. And so we find Jesus all throughout Scripture, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. Now, what we find in this reality of reading the Old Testament with the understanding that in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is concealed, and then in the New Testament, he is revealed. When we we read with the understanding that God is, And his sovereign plan is at work from the very beginning of creation to the consummation of the age where he will make all things new and all those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ enter into his kingdom forever. That when we understand that his hand has been at work and we look at the Old Testament and we read with the understanding that not only there are hermeneutical principles or principles in how we read God's word, with genres and different books of the Bible, understanding the context of what was going on in the world at that time and who the author was writing to and who the original author was and original audience was. But there's also a hermeneutical principle that can be applied in reading into the Old Testament that is called typology. And in typology, as defined by Baker's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, typology is this. It is a type that can be defined as a biblical event, person, or institution that serves as an example or pattern for events, persons, or institutions in the later Old Testament and in the New Testament. Typology is based on the assumption that there is a pattern in God's work in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that forms a promise-fulfillment relationship. In the Old Testament, there are shadows of things that will be more fully revealed in the New Testament. Thus, the Old Testament flows into the New Testament as part of a continuous story of salvation history. What is promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. We just sang uh, a, a verse of typology here just a little bit ago. When we were singing about the the thousand names of God, the thousand names of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we sang that one of his names is the second Adam. That is a, a, a part of typology, that Adam serves as a type of Christ, an imperfect type of Christ. Where all of the various types in the Old Testament are imperfect, Jesus Christ is the perfect reflection of that imperfect individual, that imperfect event, that imperfect place. So what we see is the reality that the the Old Testament flows into the New Testament as part of a continuous story of salvation history. And what is promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament and this can be accomplished through prophetic word or through prophetic action or events, the use of prophetic action or events to predict or foreshadow future actions or events is typology. Typology is part of the promise fulfillment scheme that connects the two testaments together. So the the Bible isn't one book. It's not one book divided into two halves. It is a library of 66 books that fits perfectly and harmoniously together. A number of biblical interpreters know that there are three primary characteristics of types which can be identified. First, there must be some notable point of resemblance or analogy between the type and its anti-type. Second, there must be evidence that the type was appointed by God to represent the thing typified. Here, one must avoid the two extremes, of on one hand saying that a type is a type only when the scripture explicitly calls it such, and on the other hand, finding a type behind every tree. Third, a type should prefigure something in the future. Thus, antitype, as in the New Testament, must present truth more fully realized than that which was realized in the Old Testament. And all of you say, what in the world did you just say? What in the world are you talking about? Well, over the next six weeks, that is the goal of this sermon series, is for us to look into the Old Testament and see the various types of Christ that are fulfilled by him in the New Testament. That what we can see is that God Almighty has had a plan all along. In your life, does it ever feel like everything is just random? Things are just falling in all around you. The walls are closing in. Nothing makes sense whatsoever. It seems like everything is constantly in flux and that there is no way you can get your bearings. It seems like up is down, down is up, and that you are just completely at the whim of this, this wind blowing you to and fro about this earth. Ever feel like that? Ever get there? I think if we're all open and honest and transparent with one another, we would say that oftentimes life can feel like that. kind of feels like just a random sequence of events. But yet what we see through the study of typology and the study of God's Word is that He's had a plan all along. That even when it seemed like He wasn't at work, He was at work. Even when it seems in our life that God isn't present, He is is present. In fact, what we what we find is that all of scripture is teaching us about Jesus. All of it. Luke 24:25 through 27, God's word tells us this. And he said to them on the road to Emmaus after he has been resurrected, uh, he's been crucified, he's been buried, he is resurrected, he's walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow apart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, and when this talks about beginning with Moses, what this is referring to is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Now, Moses was the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, and so he's saying beginning with Moses, beginning with the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, in other words, all of the Old Testament, starting with the first five books and working his way all through the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he's saying, you're going to find me in the Pentateuch. You're going to find me in the prophets. You're going to find me in the Psalms. You're going to find that God has been foreshadowing my life, my death, my burial, and my resurrection all along. Ever since Genesis 3, when it was prophesied that there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, even though it would come at great price of himself, and his heel would be bruised. That's a type. It's a foreshadowing. It's a shadow in the Old Testament that is being cast by Jesus into the Old Testament for us to understand that God has always had a plan. And his plan for my life and for your life and for all those who have drawn breath here on this earth is Jesus. He's the plan for your life. Jesus goes into the upper room where the disciples have gathered. And in Luke 24, verses 44 through 45, we read this. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the first five books, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And I pray that through our time together over the next six weeks, we'll get a glimpse of what it is that Jesus was trying to do to the disciples on the road of Emmaus. And to the disciples that were in the upper room. And that is to understand that Jesus has always been the plan for you and for me. Now, where theologians would use the term type or typology, the Bible actually uses a word called shadows. We read about that in Colossians 2.17. In Colossians 2.17, it says, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He's just talking about festivals, and he's talked about the Sabbath. He's talked about things that the Israelites had started to put a higher emphasis on the festival or uh, the, the, the event itself, as opposed to putting a higher emphasis upon the one that the festival or the event was supposed to point us to. These are just shadows. But the one that actually has the substance is Christ. The one who is casting that shadow is Jesus. And what God wants us to see is not just the shadow, but he wants us to see Christ who is the substance. Now, most of the time we don't use terminology like types. We don't even use terminology like shadows. So let me use a phrase that we might be a little bit more familiar with to understand exactly what typology and shadows are in Scripture. There is a term that we use to talk about things that are found in video games and movies that are intentionally planted there that you don't see on the surface but are in the background and they're called Easter eggs. Now, Maybe you're watching a movie and you see an allusion to another movie in the background. It's not right on the surface but it's there in plain sight for those that know how to look and to find those things. And you will see these various Easter eggs. Now, when I was younger, I used to love to play video games, and one of my most favorite video games to play was NBA Jam Arcade Edition, 1995. (laughs) Now, in NBA Jam 1995, there were hidden characters that if you knew where to look and you knew what codes to put in, you could play with those characters. You could play with the likes of Marv Alberts. You could play with Prince Charles. You could play with Bill and Hillary Clinton. They had a killer crossover. (laughs) Emphasis on killer. Or DJ Jazzy Jeff and the fresh prince of Bel Air, Will Smith. That's my favorite. This This was my team to play with in 1995, NBA Jam. He's on fire. And some of you will understand that reference. But the Easter egg found in NBA Jam 1995 uh, Tournament Edition uh, was not the first Easter egg in a video game. The very first Easter egg in a video game, or, or really that can be alluded to in reference, is Moonlander 1973 for Atari. And in it, we've gone a long way in graphics, have we not? Uh, You try to land your spaceship onto the surface of the moon. And if you went to a certain location of the surface of the moon and landed, you would come next to the very first McDonald's on the moon where you could order two cheeseburgers and a Big Mac to go. Not just video games are Easter eggs found, but in all kinds of movies, we find various Easter eggs. Like, for instance, Indiana Jones and the Raider of the Lost Ark. When he is in the Well of Souls, this is uh, produced and directed by, by George Lucas, who is also the one who produced and uh, uh, directed uh, Star Wars, and when he has found the Ark of the Covenant and the hieroglyphics there uh, in this Egyptian uh, uh, tomb, in this tomb, uh, we see C-3PO and R2-D2 etched into the side. Or in the 1982 classic, Tron, love Tron. And Sark, as he is looking uh, for Jeff Bridges and those that are are in the game, as he's looking at the map, trying to find them, hidden off to the side is Pac-Man. Easter eggs that are pointed that if you know where to look and you know what is going on, there is a nod that points you to something that has either already happened or is foreshadowing something that will happen. And so the last one the end credit scene of 2010's Iron Man, Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, 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 there you go, Mjolnir, comes crashing down, and it's a foreshadowing of what the next movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe would be, and that was the movie Thor. Foreshadowing and pointing. Now, I spent a whole lot of time on that (laughs) to help you understand that you find things like this In the Old Testament, all the time, and each and every one of them are pointing us to Jesus. Each and every one of us, each and every one of them are foreshadowing Jesus Christ for us to see. And so, over the next six weeks, we're going to look at a few of these. Today, we're going to begin by looking at the tabernacle. The tabernacle that was used in the wilderness where the Israelites would come and they would sacrifice various animals to cleanse them of their sin and where the priests went about their priestly duties as the Israelites made their way from Egypt to the promised land. And so if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, we read about the tabernacle starting in Exodus 25. It goes through 30. Uh, Then we read about the golden calf, and then it picks back up, and it starts to walk us through even more of the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle. And then in Exodus chapter 40 is when the tabernacle is set up, is when the tabernacle is erected. Let me read to you from God's word, and then let's see what this tabernacle that was constructed and utilized so many thousands of years ago has uh, and what implications it has for our lives today. Verse 1, Exodus 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in the ark of the testimony and shall screen the ark with the veil, And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments." And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Verse 16. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month and the second year on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the tabernacle in the Tent of Meeting and on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the Tent of Meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the Tent of Meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses He put in place a screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court and around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And may God bless the reading of his word. Now, what does this have to do with us? What is this place of worship that the Israelites used in the wilderness as they trekked, which would end up being 40 years, from captivity in Egypt to the Promised Land? Before there ever was a temple, they had a portable one. And whenever the glory of the Lord started to take up and move, they would move until the glory of the Lord settled, and they wouldn't move unless the glory of the Lord moved, which is a good picture for us as followers of Jesus Christ. When God says move, we should move. When God says stay put, we should stay put. We should always look for God to prompt the next step of our lives. But what does this have to do with us? What does this really entail? Well, First Corinthians 1, or excuse me, Hebrews 8.5 speaks of uh, uh, this reality. Maybe it's Hebrews 5.8. I'm going to get it right here in a second. Whatever the next slide is, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, oh, okay, that's right. Back it up. Okay, I'm, I'm, throwing, I'm throwing him way off. All right, go, go, go back. Let me walk you through the tabernacle before we get into that. This is what this would have looked like. This is what the, the tabernacle consisted of. You get an idea of how big it was compared to a football field. There was one entrance And then as soon as the individual that was coming with their sin offering through the gate entered in, the very first thing that they would come to would be the the bronze altar. And you could see how big it was compared to a normal-sized individual. They would take a bull or a goat, and they would put it up on the altar. They would tie it to one of the horns. They would slit its throat. The blood would uh, uh, be... uh, 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 joined, uh, gathered, or collected, and in, in, in the basin at the bottom, and then they would they would do, they would burn the offering. As soon as that sacrifice was made, the next step would be for the individuals to go, and they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet in the bronze laver. Once that was done, only the priests at this point could walk into the tent of meeting, which is the holy place, and. You get a picture of the the tent of meeting. It had four layers of curtains that covered it. And if we were to peel those curtains back, you have the golden lampstand. You have the table of the presence of bread. Uh, You have the the golden altar of incense. Then there's a veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And behind the veil in the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant where the Shekinah glory of God Almighty dwelled. The presence of God chose to dwell in a very special, unique way. So the priest would come in and right off to the left would be the lampstand that the priest would attend to and the priest would light. There are no windows in the tabernacle, so this lampstand would be the only thing that gave off light. And directly across from it on the right side would be the table of the bread of presents. They would come, they put the fresh bread uh, there on the table of presents, 12 uh, pieces, one for each tribe to represent each tribe. And then behind that, right in front of the veil... Uh, would be the golden altar of incense where uh, they would take the the coals from the bronze altar out in the courtyard. They would bring them in here and then they would pour incense on top of that and the beautiful aroma of that incense would fill the the tabernacle. Now, separating the holy place from the most holy place is a veil. And it had these three cherubims uh, 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 on it. And behind this veil... Only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Nobody else could go behind that that veil. Nobody else could go behind that curtain. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go behind this veil to the Ark of the Covenant. He would take the blood of a bull and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that would be for the forgiveness of all of the sins of God's people on that specific day. So throughout the year, they're bringing sins for themselves, but on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice will be made for all of God's people in that time. So now, what does that mean for us? Well, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 8.5, it says that these things, talking about the things of the tabernacle, talking about the things of the tent, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So he was given the instructions for the tabernacle on Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. Then he came back down. If you remember the story, that's when he found that Aaron had led people in idolatry and rebellion. They had made the golden calf. But this tent serves as a copy or a shadow. In other words, there's something with more substance. And remember, that substance is Christ Jesus. So these things that are being taught to us in the tabernacle, in the system of the tabernacle, are actually foreshadowing the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what can we learn about these things? Well, after we would walk back through what it is that we just looked at as far as how the tabernacle is set up, the very first thing that we need to understand is that you would have come to the courtyard. The outside, uh, inside the, the, the walls, if you will, of the curtain set up is what is called the courtyard. And the courtyard and its furnishings shadow our justification. It shadows our justification. Right? Because we see in 1 Corinthians one thirty, in 1 Corinthians one thirty, God's word says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness. When, when we talk about justification, it's talking about Christ's righteousness being imputed to you. You're not righteous in your own strength. You're not righteous because of how often you attend church. You're not righteous because of how often you serve down at the homeless shelter. You're not righteous because of how much money you give to the church. There's nothing that you can do in and of yourself that will give you a righteousness that allows you to stand before a perfect and a holy God, that allows you access to the presence of a perfect and a holy God. Justification is just as if I hadn't sinned. Just if I had never sinned, I am now justified by God Almighty. I now have a righteousness that is not my own. But not only that, Jesus didn't just become our righteousness, which we'll see as the courtyard, but he's also our sanctification, which is what we will see in the holy place. But not only is he our sanctification, but he's our redemption, which is our glorification, which we will ultimately experience when we step into the very presence of God in heaven, where all sin has been removed. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And there's a lot of individuals that boast in their own righteousness or their own self-deeds or their own abilities. And God says, listen, the only thing that we have to boast in is Jesus. Because we're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And apart from Jesus Christ, none of us have any hope. But there is a way that we must come to God Almighty. If we want to come into the presence of God Almighty, there is a way that we must come. And so if we go back and we think about the layout of the tabernacle for an individual to come and to have their sins cleansed through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, they would have had to come to the tabernacle, and there was only one entrance into the tabernacle. There was only one gate. You couldn't access The altar to bring your sacrifice by any other way than the gate that is at the east side of the tabernacle. Jesus says this of himself in John 10, 1. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In other words, he's saying there's not many ways to God. There's only one way. There's only one door. There's only one gate. And in John 10, 9, he clarifies who that gate is. I am the door. You want forgiveness of your sins? You want to be cleansed? You want to access the presence of God Almighty? Well, guess what? You've got to come through the door that is Christ Jesus. Because if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. There was only one entrance. Then, once you came through that gate, once you accessed the tabernacle through that one gate, the very first thing you would have come to was that bronze altar where the sacrifice would have been brought. Well, Ephesians two thirteen tells us this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That Jesus is our sacrifice. For them to find forgiveness of their sins, they had to bring a sacrificial animal to be placed upon the altar. And what Jesus shows us is that he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That it's by the shedding of his blood that we are saved. But this isn't something that he has to do perpetually like those in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Remember, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is a shadow of something that is fuller, is a shadow of something that is perfect, is a shadow of something that is better. That's why in Hebrews 10.1, we read this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. It's not that the law is bad. It's just that you can't fulfill the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Because the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He goes on to say in verses 2 through 4 of Hebrews 10, the author tells us, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, they, every time that they sinned, they had to keep bringing these bulls. They had to keep bringing these goats. And once a year, they had the Day of Atonement for all of God's people. And so the sacrificial system happened over and over and over again. And unfortunately, there are many people who have experienced the forgiveness of God by faith in Christ Jesus that continue to live as if Jesus has to get back up on the cross and die for you over and over over and over again. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords and all of those that have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. There is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. The sacrificial system was a shadow, imperfect, pointing forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that his perfect spotless blood as it was shed would allow us to be cleansed Once and for all. Listen, church, stop putting him back up on the cross. Stop putting him back in the empty tomb. He's on the throne where he belongs. And may we live our lives out in full recognition that he's king of kings and he's lord of lords. And all victory has been secured for us by him and by him alone. Amen. You go past the bronze altar where the sacrifice is, and you would go to the bronze laver. You would go to where you would wash your hands and where you would wash your feet. This is a picture that after you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are to be baptized. Uh, That after uh, we are saved, after our sins are forgiven, not before. The bronze laver is not before the altar, it's after the altar. Once in the, the blood had been shed and the individual's sin had been forgiven through that sacrifice, then they went to go be cleansed. But we also see that the world offers many ways for us to cleanse and to try to wash ourselves, but none of them are sufficient. And so in John 4, 15, as Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Talking about the worldly water. Talking about not just the water that was in the well there present as he's talking to her, but what the water that the world offers. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Where have you been cleansed? What do you drink from? The well water of the world? contaminated and polluted, or from the living water that is Christ Jesus. As he says, when you drink of the living water that is Christ Jesus, you have that same living water that is living inside of you, that is becoming a spring of life that is overflowing into your lives. Now, after the bronze labor, only priests could enter into the holy place. Only priests were allowed into the next section where the golden lampstand and the table of the presence of bread and the golden altar of incense was. Only priests could enter into that section. But you know what Jesus Christ uh, in his word tells us in 1 Peter 2, 4-5? through It says, all those that have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, guess what? We are now a royal priesthood. We are now priests. God Almighty. And that doesn't mean we wear black robes with little white neckties. It does mean, though, that you have been given a ministry. It does mean that you have been called to serve God Almighty. You have been called to be His representative. You have been called to be His ambassador. You've been called to live your faith out in this broken and dying world. But that gets hard sometimes, does it not? Listen, living like the world, that's easy. Jesus Christ Saved me when I was 31 years old. I lived like the world for a long time. It's easy to go along with the crowd. It's easy to go along with the flow. It's easy to go along with the world. To live for Jesus Christ in a broken and fallen world that is growing increasingly more hostile to God, to the people of God, and to the Word of God, that ain't easy, is it? If we're all open and honest with each other, we would say that sometimes being a follower of Jesus Christ is difficult. It's easier to just go along with the world. But he says, no, 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 I've separated you. I've called you to be a priest. But it gets pretty dark sometimes, doesn't it? This world is pretty dark, is it not? And so where the courtyard and its furnishings shadow our justification The holy place and its furnishings shadow our sanctification, where we start to uh, look more and more like Jesus, where we start to fulfill what it is that God's intended purpose for our lives here on this earth is to look like. Remember, there's no windows in the tabernacle. It's, It's dark inside the tabernacle. And there was only one thing that gave off light, to help the priest navigate what it was that they were to be doing inside the holy place, and that was the golden lampstand. The only thing that gave off light. John 8, 12, Jesus Christ says this of himself. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I'm the light. You want to know how to navigate your life in this dark and fallen and broken world? I am the light. And all those who follow after me, they will never walk in darkness again. He made this proclamation at the temple uh, during the the, the festival of booths where Israelites would come from all over to Jerusalem and they would set up these booths as a reminder of how they lived in the wilderness, in the tents in the wilderness. And what they would do is they would get these gallons and gallons of oil and they would set set up these huge kind of candelabras and they would burn this oil for days and days. Each candle or each uh, uh, thing that they burned held 40 gallons of oil and it would put off such a flame that it would shoot up lights into the air where they said that you could see light all around Jerusalem at night. And each of those pillars was to represent what we read about in the last few verses of Exodus 40, that during the day there was a pillar of of cloud, and that night there was a pillar of fire. And they didn't go anywhere unless that was uh, uh, moving, and they stayed still when it stayed. And it was a proclamation that God's presence dwelled there. And with that as a backdrop, Jesus makes the proclamation, I am the light of the world. Not just for Jerusalem, I light up the darkness of the entire world, and all those who follow after me will never walk in darkness again. Now, directly across from that is the table of the bread of presence. Maybe you see where we're going with this. John 6 35, Jesus says as himself, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, where the candle gives off light and gives us sight in the darkness, the bread of presence gives us strength so that we can live our faith out as Jesus has called us to. And then right before the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place is the altar of incense. And where the candle portrays for us sight in a dark and broken world and the bread portrays for us strength and nourishment In this lost and broken world, the altar of incense is a representation of the supplication that we must learn to rely upon God and his power and his strength as we go about our lives. So incense is viewed as a a symbol of prayer that just as the incense was lifted up to, to God Almighty and would rise, so too our prayers are viewed in that way. And our prayers, which are a recognition that we have no power in and of ourselves, it's a reaching away from ourselves and our wisdom and our strength and a reaching towards God Almighty and his power and his strength and full recognition that only he can change our situations, only he can change our circumstances. And just as the incense raised up as a fragrant aroma to God, so too our prayers raise up as a fragrant aroma to God. Psalm 141, verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, we're going to go through this series, and we're going to conclude this series on Easter Sunday by looking at Abraham and Isaac. And then the following Sunday, we're going to start a verse by verse walk through the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 5, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, God's word says this And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So, this altar of incense, as the incense would be burned, It's really a shadow of the prayers of God's people. That through the sanctification process, we're learning to rely upon God more than relying upon ourselves. And when we do that, it's a fragrant aroma to God Almighty. That we would learn through this process that we must rely upon God more than we rely upon each other. Now, earlier I had mentioned that the tabernacle is covered with four layers uh, of, uh, of tent, four layers of curtains. The very first layer, the interior layer, is made of fine linen, the most beautifully woven, white, pure, fine linen that you could imagine. Now, you can't see that from the outside. Only those individuals that have entered into the holy place can see that. This is a picture of the purity the righteousness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. A lost and a dying world doesn't see that. Those that are outside, those that have not had their sins forgiven by faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, those that haven't been cleansed, those that don't have the the, the light of the world shining into the darkness, those that have been strengthened by the bread of life, they don't get to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Only those that have placed their faith in Jesus get to see the beauty of Jesus. But there was a second layer on top of that, and it was a layer of a curtain of goat hair, which is a picture of Jesus Christ being our sin bearer. If you've ever heard the term scapegoat, in Scripture, there would be two goats that would be brought by an individual, and they would place their hand on on one goat, and the the sins of that individual would be transferred to that individual. That that goat would be... uh, uh, killed and sacrificed, and the other goat would be left as a reflection, as a picture of the fact that your sin has been removed from you and that, that you have been forgiven. And so you can go here. You don't have to die like this goat. You get to go. You, there is a scapegoat, and so you you, you, get to go, you get to go out. Now, the problem is the goats kept returning, and so then they started throwing them off cliffs so they wouldn't come back and ruin the illustration. But there was a third layer of ram skin that was dyed red. And this is a picture of Christ as our sacrifice to die for our sins. Now, the outer layer, the outer curtain, or the ones that everybody would see outside of the tabernacle and would see from the courtyard, was made of badger skin. And it had no beauty whatsoever. Just like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is referred to in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 2. He had no beauty or form in and of himself that the world would desire him. But they didn't want and they rejected Jesus. But those that have placed their faith in Jesus and have come in to see his beauty and his majesty know that only Christ Jesus can give to us what it is we so desire. Now lastly, the most holy place or the inter-sanctum of the tabernacle, the most holy place, and its furnishings shadow our glorification. This is where the very presence of God dwelt. So you have to go through the courtyard. There had to be forgiveness for your sins. You'd be cleansed. You'd go into the holy place, and then the, the high priest, once a year, would be able to go past the veil and go into the most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt and where the Ark of the Covenant was. Matthew 7, 50 through 51 speaks of what happened to this veil of the temple when Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now we have direct access to God Almighty. There is no veil for one person, only one time of year, to access the presence of God Almighty. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that veil was ripped in two to show to you and to me and to the rest of the world that now we have direct access to God Almighty. Now think about that. Do you think you could get an audience with the president today? Do you think you could call up the president and say, hey, I'd like to talk with you? I'd like to visit with you a little bit. You, you, you think he's going to take that call? You think that appointment's going to get made? Probably not. He's going to look at some of y'all's Facebook and say, mm-mm. <laughs> Maybe next week. Maybe if he has a little bit more time, next week he'll be able to meet with you. Probably not next week. Maybe next month. Maybe not next month. Maybe next year. If you jump through all the hoops, you sign all of the forms, you go through all of the things, maybe in a year the President of the United States will sit down and have a conversation with you. Maybe. I doubt it, but maybe. However, do you know the one that he's going to stand in front of one day and give an account for his life, just like everybody else on the Day of Judgment will have to do, you have direct access to in this moment right now? You don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to fill out any forms. All you have to do is cry out to God Almighty and the very one who created and spoke everything into existence. So there is nothing that is now separating me from you. You can come to me anytime with anything. I will not turn you away. I will receive you and I will accept you because just like the high priest could stand into the presence of God Almighty that one time out of the year because he sprinkled the blood of the bull on the mercy seat, so too our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat. Seat, and now God will allow all those that have placed their faith in Christ Jesus to enter into His presence. Amen. Well, that's good. That's good news to me because I tell you, I need God Almighty often. This mercy seat would be above the the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant held the the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The budded rod of Aaron and a jar of the manna that was supplied to the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, there's something very interesting that we read in Revelation 11:19. In Revelation 11:19, God's word says this, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. The Ark of the Covenant in the Tabernacle was where God's presence dwelled. For all those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, one day we will be in God's eternal kingdom. Well, we will be in the very presence of God Almighty. Well, there's no need for hospitals because there's no sickness or disease. There's no need for cemeteries because there's no death. There's no need for Police officers or military because there will be no crime and there will be no wars. A place where we will spend all of eternity in the very presence of God Almighty. And ultimately, that is what this truly is all about. It's about God Almighty desiring a relationship with each and every one of us that we read before the fall of man, God walked with man, that there was a unique personal relationship where the very presence of God was with man as they walked in the very cool of the day together. But upon man's rebellion, they were excommunicated out of paradise, out of Eden. And do you remember the story? Because he didn't want them to eat of the tree of life and for us to stay in that condition forever, he set up two cherubim at the very edge of Eden at the east. Of Eden, They were sent east and a gate was set up on the east and for them to get back to the presence of God or to the tree of life, they would have to come from the east to the west. The tabernacle is set up to where the gate is at the east and the very presence of God is on the west. And the only way to get to the presence of God was to come through the gate, to make the sacrifice, to get cleansed walk past the light in the tabernacle, The presence of the bread of uh, the table of the presence of bread, the altar of incense, blood on the mercy seat, the very presence of God. And now you can stand in the presence of God. And Jesus Christ did that for each and every one of us. For He is the gate. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who has cleansed us. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. It is in His name that we can cry out to God and have access to Him at all times. Because of His death, burial, and resurrection, the veil has been torn, and we can step into the very presence of God as his children because of Jesus. Have you experienced the goodness and the glory of that? Because we've all been given access, but the blood is only applied to those who come to him in faith. If you have never come to him in faith, I pray that in this moment right now, you would reach out and place your faith and your trust in Jesus. And for those of you that have, I pray in this moment right now, you would rest in the reality that he's not on the cross and he's not in the tomb. He's on the throne. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's not up for debate, and we're not going to vote on that every four years.